Hi everyone, and welcome to this episode of season two of the Biome podcast uh, with me and my wonderful co-hosts Emma Hodson and Kate Sheridan. And today we are going to be talking about, I think, quite a nicely condensed issue. Actually, we're going to be talking about whaling, um, which is interesting because it, you know when we were starting this podcast, we were writing down all the big conservation issues to talk about. I think it was probably one of the ones I knew the least about. Yeah, I same. I kind of obviously you hear about it in the conservation industry, but I hadn't actually looked into kind of. The difference between like scientific commercial whaling like there's a lot to it <laughs> there's a lot of whaling as it turns <laughs> out yeah um so yeah we're just going to try and unpack it a bit i i think you know in a bit of a break from our other podcast this isn't really one where we're going to do as much of a as a for and against it's not an issue which kind of um lends itself to kind of for and against style uh debate i don't think we're just going to try and unpack it go through it give you some of the background to it some of the reasons why people might be whaling, some of the some of the types of whaling that happens, um, and also just what whaling is going on today and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, so, as I'm sure everyone kind of knows, whaling is the practice of hunting and killing whales, primarily for their oil, and historically it was mainly for their oil, um, but nowadays it's actually quite often for meat, for whalebone, or for scientific research. Um, for this episode, whaling is going to be the focus. We will also touch on some of the other things that do threaten whales, but we're mainly going to be talking about whaling. Um, and it's it's not just... We tend to think of it as something, you know, Greenpeace going out on a boat and filming people uh, whaling. But actually, as long as humans have been living by the oceans, we've had some connection to whaling. And so some of the earliest records of whaling go back over 6,000 years. Um but the kind of industrial whaling that we, we kind of think about in our heads uh, was the peak of that was really the 1930s when around 50,000 whales were being killed annually. Wow. It's a lot of whales, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is a lot. And I think kind of what exacerbated that even further was kind of the First World War. Um, so this is something I didn't actually realise and I was quite shocked reading how much of a big role whales played during the First World War. So nearly 60,000 whales were killed during the war to provide Britain and its allies with the oil that they needed to oh, continue really? fighting. Yeah. Wow. wow. I so, have no idea. And an interest, it's almost, um, there's some stuff there going on between whether countries were allies or neutral as to how the whale um, oil kind of circulated. So at the time, the whaling industry was controlled by Norway and they decided to remain neutral during the war. And the Norwegian whaling fleet was mainly operated in um, British South Atlantic territory. So what that meant was that Britain was able to control the entire whaling industry during the war. And they were able to acquire this oil at really low prices. Wow. Um, so possibly Wales won the war. We don't hear that very often. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> And it, even they put up loads of propaganda posters as well, like with pictures of seals and whales and other things which had um, this type of oil, telling people, anyone who had a boat, any fishermen, to go out and catch them. Um, so, so what is that oil? Because you hear a lot about whale oil, but do, are whales just full of oil? I, I, don't, I don't know this. I don't know that much about whale oil. 
Is it? Are they just floating bags of olive oil? <laughs> Obviously not olive oil. <laughs> I mean, so initially, whale oil was used to make soap. So they do have a lot of oil within them, which was used as soap. But then where it links into warfare is that there was a byproduct of this soap making process that was called glycerine. Hmm. And nitroglycerine was a big component of cordite, which was used uh... in artillery shells and arms ammunitions. So it was kind of that byproduct rather than the direct oil which was used. Oh, cool. um, but also the oil itself was is an incredibly good lubricant. And so it can remain liquid even in freezing temperatures because that's what whales need to use it for in <laughs> yeah. the ocean when it's cold. And so they used it for rifles, watches, um, military instruments, machines. It was used for so many different things. And for, I didn't know this at all, but in the trenches, um, British soldiers would actually rub their feet in whale oil to protect, oh my God. to stop them getting trench foot. Um, oh, wow, that's and then, so- that's mad. I know, it's bonkers. And they like pilots as well would smear whale oil on their face to protect them from the cold. And it's said that some battalions got through 10 gallons of whale oil a day. Oh my God. So, so whales was, really did win the war. They did. Yeah. I mean, it was being used for in every aspect of the war. It was used to make the sandbags in the trenches. It was used by the soldiers. It was used in the machinery. It was used in the artillery. So... I, I'm going to go out there and say it. I don't think Britain would have won the war if it wasn't for Wales. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. That's, I didn't realise the war had such a big impact in kind of bringing whale oil to the market because it's still something that was used so much after the war. And it seems like because it was so useful in the war, it would almost lose its purpose. But actually, mm. it did sort of remain really important after the First World War and after the Second World War. And actually reached a peak in sort of 1960s um, with around 65,000 whales being killed every year. So a bit more than what we were seeing kind of in between the two wars. And it wasn't just whales, as you said, it's kind of seals, dolphins and even penguins were also being killed for this oil. Um, So it's obviously kind of a marine thing (laughs) (laughs) because the oceans are so cold. A marine product from kind of marine, not even just mammals though, also birds. There was quite a large movement in the 1970s that was anti-whaling and we kind of move into the more contentious time surrounding whaling, which is what we're going to talk about more as this podcast goes on. And this led to um, actually a temporary ban on commercial whaling, which came into effect in uh, 1986 when the International Whaling Commission, so also known as the IWC, banned commercial whaling. Um, and the way that IWC works is that it's a kind of it's like a members agreement. It's quite similar to CITES in that sense that different countries sign up and join the commission. And then when you're in the commission, you have to comply by the rules. So all the members of the IWC agreed to comply to this commercial ban of whaling. And the only whaling allowed under this commercial ban is for scientific purposes, because that's technically not for commercial gain. Hmm. I think that's something I maybe didn't realise about the IWC. I... I think a couple of years ago, I thought it was a permanent ban on whaling. I didn't realise it was just a temporary ban kind of until their numbers recovered. I kind of thought that it that meant that whaling was banned, but clearly it's not a permanent thing. Yeah, it was introduced as a temporary ban. And I think there's a lot of debate about that, especially with the IWC, which we'll kind of, we'll go a bit more into the IWC later on in the podcast. Um but yeah, there is a kind of thought in people's heads that whaling is always banned. And actually, if you ask anyone who works for the IWC, they'll probably say, yeah, it was a it was a ban in order to collect more data to understand, 
you know, whale demography with the view to potentially starting up whaling again. Um, yeah, and to allow stocks to recover, because mm. if whaling, commercial whaling had carried on at the rate it was, it was an incredibly unsustainable industry and we would have lost all our whales and then the industry would have collapsed. So it was this sort of longevity idea um, to allow the stocks to recover. So there's currently 88 members of the IWC. And that's the other important point is that if you're not a member of the IWC, you don't have to comply by their rules. Um, but they also, they work on more than just whaling they work on understanding the threats to whales beyond that um, which we're going to go into a bit later but things like entanglement bycatch climate change ship strikes marine debris and kind of other environmental concerns so they do a lot of research they do a lot of other work it's not just it's called the international whaling commission but they don't just specifically work on whaling and how to get whaling back up again they do a lot of research they do a lot of conservation work as well and it's yeah this sort of global body of 88 members so just to kind of sink the issue, no pun intended, of whaling into a more modern context, but also give you the historical context, whaling's been around for a really long time. Um, the earliest records, are, the earliest definitive records are from about 3000 BC, but the Neolithic Bangude petroglyphs, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, do correct me if I'm wrong, in Korea might even date from 6000 BC, which has wow. evidence of whaling. And these were coastal communities utilising subsistence hunting, much like the kind of dolphin drives we see today in the Faroe Islands. Um, it only became industrialised in the 17th century, and it was the Basque people in Spain, actually, who first developed an industrial whaling fleet. Competitive national whaling industries then began in the 18th and 19th centuries. Factory ships, those kind of... They're really horrible to think about. They're literally floating factories to process whales, emerged in the first half of the 20th century, probably again coinciding with those two world wars um and then obviously you have that massive peak that kate you were talking about in the in the 70s and it's in 1986 that the iwc bans commercial whaling this isn't the temporary ban this is the full ban although it will be <laughs> subject to review if if numbers uh restock but there are a couple of exceptions to that ban um so under the iwc aboriginal subsistence whaling is allowed to continue um, and there are several countries such as uh, Canada, the USA, uh, Faroe Islands, Green Greenland and Alaska, which kind of fall under that scheme as well as Indonesia. Um, I'm curious why, because um, you, you mentioned Spain, like the Basque people, if they were one of the first people to actually take part in whaling, why that isn't included on that on that list? I don't think they count as subsistence whalers um, because, because, because it, it was, was a commercial, commercial enterprise. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But there are still some commercial whaling operations that do occur. So Japan, Iceland and Norway are the, are the big three. And then South, uh, South Korea is the other one. And all of these ones have since left the IWC and continue to commercially whale. Um, so, you know, we love to say, or we, we like to think that the whales are safe, but actually whaling would, does still continue. Um, and I think it might be an interesting point to say, like, wh why why whaling? Why are people taking these whales? Because... The war's over. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. The war is over. <laughs> Not for us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they were originally hunted for their oil, for lamps, margarine and fuel. And today, oil isn't really used that much, but it's, they're mainly hunted for food. So either for pets, so feeding dogs and things in fur farms, which I 
didn't really know was happening. <laughs> um, sled dogs, humans, and also for carving out their bones, tusks, and teeth. So people are still using almost all of the whale because there is almost a property that you can get from from all different parts of it, really. And so with commercial whaling, um, a lot of that is hunting of things like minke whales, and the meat is eaten by humans and animals, and the blubber is actually rendered down um, for cheap industrial products such as animal feed. Um, and in Iceland, it's actually used as a fuel supplement for whaling ships, which huh. is quite ironic. <laughs> I know, that's an interesting circle, isn't it? Yeah. That's a bit of a... Not sure how using whales to power the whaling ships. <laughs> so part of the sure. reason Icelanders are hunting whales is to fuel the whale hunting ships. Yeah. That... Okay. That's, that's very interesting, that. <laughs> that's quite interesting, though, kind of everything you just said. My kind of... Part of me thinking, oh, actually, you know, every single... Well, pretty much every single part of the whale is being used in some way, mm. which is actually a lot more sustainable than a lot of kind of commercial agriculture, mm. where there's just huge amounts of waste because we only eat one particular cut of meat or a few cuts of meat, but we don't really use the bones, we don't use the organs... Uh, yeah. We don't. Whereas here, you know, the bones are being used, teeth, blubber, oil, meat. So actually, it's quite, you know, sustainable in that sense. There's a bit less waste and of the actual animal. And I think we're going to touch on this later as a case study, but that is actually an argument used by the Faroese people on the Faroe mm. Islands. They say this is one of the most sustainable, environmentally friendly ways that we can get our meat. Um, mm. So it's just, it's interesting that you say, Kate, there is a lot of uses for every single part of the whale. Yeah. And kind of to talk more about the the legislation and and the IWC, because the IWC are such a big player in this. Um, So they were originally set up to decide the hunting quotas and other relevant matters based on the findings of their scientific uh, committee. And obviously as I mentioned before, non-members are not bound to its regulations and they are free to conduct their own kind of management programmes. The IWC regulates hunting of 13 species of great whales, but not smaller species. In 2010, um, at an IWC meeting, the 88 member states discussed whether or not to lift this 24-year ban. And as uh, Emma just mentioned, Japan, Norway and Iceland were kind of advocates for lifting this ban. Um, and there's a coalition of kind of anti-whaling nations that offered a compromise that allowed these countries to continue whaling, but with smaller catches and under quite close supervision. And they banned whaling entirely in the Southern Ocean. And this compromise was actually opposed by more than 200 scientists. So this was possibly a bit of a political move um, to kind of, you know, give them a little bit because they didn't want whaling to continue in a, on a bigger scale so it was a sort of compromise but scientifically the research wasn't really there to back this up opponents of the compromise want to see an end to all commercial whaling um, but they will allow subsistence catches by aboriginal peoples some shortfalls of the iwc are that it was revealed in 1994 that uh, the ussr had been systematically undercounting its catch uh, between 1940 and 1973, they caught 48,477 humpbacks instead of the 2,710 <laughs> it reported. Oh my um, god! So that's a difference. <laughs> yeah, that's a difference of about 42,000, 46,000 whales. So yeah. that's 
you know, that's, that's a lot not of just weight. like a typo. Yeah, that's not a typo. That's <laughs> a very, you know, deliberate calculation, miscalculation. Mm. The IWTC did raise its suspicions, but it didn't take any further action because it could interfere with national sovereignty. And I think that's a problem that you're always going to see with these international bodies is that there is going to be a political angle. Um, it's not just about the whales and what you say about whales means nothing beyond the wider context. Of course, international relations are going to play a really key part and kind of political moves and calculations. And this is 1948, 1973, this is kind of Cold War era. So, you know, people are going to be taking calculated steps and... So that's always going to be a downfall. I don't think you can really necessarily blame the IWC as a body for that. That's just how the world international works. politics works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's worth pointing out that that is a shortfall of these types of bodies because there's no... It's, it's a collaborative agent between different nations. It's not one body controlling what these countries do. Mm. But overall, the IWC, I think, is is an important and sort of necessary thing because otherwise every country would just do what they want and there wouldn't be this kind of network of management. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Um, and, it, you know, it does sound horrible. I think someone quoted that, that the USSR's actions in whaling is one of the greatest ecological crimes of the 20th century. Um, joint, you know, joint with the draining of the Mesopotamian marshes and the drying up of the Aral, Aral Sea, one of which the USSR was also involved with, interestingly enough. Um, but anyway, back to whaling, brief tangent on the USSR. Um, it's, it might, it's, I think this is quite a nice moment to compare the two types of whaling that do currently exist. So commercial whaling and Aboriginal subsistence. So commercial whaling is you're hunting these whales to sell the products for a profit. Aboriginal subsistence whaling is you're hunting these whales to provide for yourself and your community. Um, so actually, we can well, there is some available data on these. So we're going to compare the 2010 to 2014 Aboriginal whaling catches with the uh, commercial whaling catches from the same time. So this is very interesting. So Canada in that in those four years caught 4,510 whales under Aboriginal hunting, and that was split between belugas, narwhals, and bowheads. Interesting there because bowheads are one of the most critically endangered whales. Um, Greenland, this is also Aboriginal, caught 3,953. The Faroe Islands, Aboriginal, caught 3,698. The USA, Aboriginal, which will be uh, Alaskan Inuit tribes, not uh, people on the US mainland, uh, the contiguous United States, I don't think, uh, caught 1,887. Russia caught 948, Indonesia caught 100, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines caught 13. And so those are all Aboriginal subsistence catches. If you compare that to the commercial catches, which are Norway, Japan, Iceland, and South Korea for that time period, uh, Norway caught 2,795, Japan caught 2,080, Iceland caught 648, and South Korea caught 360. 76. So, so that's the, actually lower than yeah, the commercial. Yeah, that's the first thing that popped in that I noticed from that data. That's really interesting. That's complete opposite to what you would expect mm. to hear. And I think, I think you know, there is a caveat there. When it's Canada's Aboriginals are taking 4,510, it's not one group. It's many, many, many different high Arctic communities, maybe taking 10 each. Um but the species are actually quite interesting as well when you break it down by species. So commercially, uh, Norway and Iceland are mainly taking minkies. Uh, Japan and South Korea are mainly taking belugas 
and minkies. A couple are also taking humpbacks, fins and brooders. But these are big baleen whales. These are mysticetes. Uh, so, you know, the big ones with the, the baleen sieves hanging down. But if you look at uh, the subsistence catching, they're actually kind of taking different types of whales. The most commonly taken whales are belugas and narwhals, which are odontocetes. They've got teeth. They're not the, the great whales. Um, and then followed, at, interestingly, by sperm whales and minkies. So sperm whales are actually taking quite a lot now, but only by subsistence. I say quite a lot. Uh, Indonesia took 100 sperm whales over a, over a period of, of four years. Um, and then you've also got a smattering of other of other great whales in there as well. But th it's interesting the difference between species and total number. Because mm. I would have thought, so with commercial whaling, I assume there'll be more restrictions in place given the conservation status so that you wouldn't be able to commercially hunt whales with an endangered or, or vulnerable conservation status. Is is that correct? Ish. Um it's 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 more to do with profit for the commercial whalers. So they will take minkies. Things like minkies are very commonly taken, brooders whales, fin whales, because not only are they big, so they get a lot of profit from a single animal, but they're also fairly abundant. Um, the bowhead whale is one of the most endangered species of great whale, and only one of the commercial nations, Japan, takes bowheads, compared to the subsistence where uh, Canadian subsistence takes bowheads, uh, as does Greenland, uh, USA, and Russia. Mm. There's also a bit of a geographical difference there, because if the commercial whalers are only whaling in their own waters, well, South Korea, Japan, uh, bits of most of Norway aren't in the Arctic Circle, which is where the bowheads are, whereas the majority of subsistence hunters are living people in the Arctic Circle, so they're going to take what's available to them. So it is very interesting seeing how the catches break down. Um... The other interesting thing I think is worth mentioning is actually the value of individual whales. So this is for the ca catching of beluga whales in the Hudson Bay in 2013 uh, by um, indigenous subsistence uh, whalers. So you can get, uh, for, the, so for, the, for 2013 the figures were 600,000 Canadian dollars for 190 beluga, which works out to $3,000 per whale and 530,000 for 81 narwhals, which works out as 6,500 per whale. I would have thought that would have been a higher profit, actually, for an animal that big. Um, I know they're relatively small whales, but I was surprised by how low it was. And I think we're going to talk about this later, but when you actually calculate the cost of a whale and how much it's worth in its lifetime to um, the ecosystem yeah. in terms of carbon, that's in the millions. Yeah. So if you're only getting... 3,000 per whale, that's not really taking into account all the services that you will have lost as a result of hunting it. And what's really interesting is that after you subtract the costs associated with hunting the whale and the equipment and then processing the whale, the net income was actually a loss of $60 per beluga for each hunter and $7 per narwhal. So they're so, not actually making No, in this profit, instance, they're not. Profit on this. No. Um, but the I guess that's part of it is if it's subsistence whaling then they're not in it for the profit exactly yeah mm. in this particular instance the profit isn't what's driving it it's tradition and subsistence um and the hunts are actually subsidies as well um so yeah i thought that was quite just quite interesting to mention um the other really interesting point is iceland which gets a lot of the focus of the anti-whaling campaigns um in its 2006 quota 
was 30 minke whales out of an estimated total population of 174,000 and nine fin whales out of a total population of an estimated 30,000. So it's interesting that I think in our heads, the scale of the current problem might be inflated beyond what it currently is. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I, I would have, I think when you think of whaling, you think it's more being taken. Um, but like you say, if it's a big um, individual and they're using all of it, you won't need to hunt that many because you can get a lot out of the single, like bigger whale. So I think it's maybe also good to touch on the ecology of whales and kind of why we need them alive in the oceans, <laughs> like kind of the services that they can provide when they're not dead and they're not hunted. Um, so whales can influence the marine environment in several ways. You've probably seen this on Blue Planet or any of the <laughs> Attenborough documentaries. They always have whales on there. Um, so they can impact the marine environment as consumers, as prey, as vectors of nutrient and material flux and as detritus. And they can also act as carbon stores as well. Um, so we'll kind of split this up. We'll start with their role as consumers. And just, just um, to say very quickly, this is probably the segment which would count as the reasons you shouldn't whale. Um, yeah. It was a bit yeah, hard I to break it... this episode down into those boxes, <laughs> but this is very clearly, we need whales. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it forms part of why people oppose whaling because it's sort of the explanation of well what does it matter if we whale Mm. well it matters (laughs) because of their impact on the marine ecosystem yeah so i think i mean they do affect the marine ecosystem in so many ways um so kind of two main whale two main ways that whales can alter marine ecosystem is as consumers is either by one direct predation or two through indirect food web interactions So an example of this would be through um, competition. So near extermination of whales in the Southern Ocean in the 20th century may have released other krill predators, such as penguins and Antarctic fur seals, from competition. So if you're a species that eats the same thing as a whale, you may be outcompeted and so then may have to alter your feeding behaviours. And also, as whales as consumers, they can influence the physical environment as well. So some whales, like humpbacks, use bottom-feeding behaviours. So they intentionally disturb um, the sand and the shell hash, um, which causes sediments and nutrients to become suspended in the water column. And so what this does, it enhances nutrient cycling, it brings some benthic crustaceans to the surface, and it also provides food for surfing feed, surface feeding birds. So you surfing can see it's birds. surfing birds. I wish we had surfing birds. <laughs> the sequel to Angry Birds. <laughs> <Surfing Yeah>. birds. <laughs> but you can see that like, there's a whole um, host of knock-on effects in the wider ecosystem. And they can also... Um, influence the physical environment through diving and surfacing because you get this upward transport of nutrient-rich deep water as they're kind of passing through density gradients during feeding so that's that's kind of an overview of what they can do as as consumers I think that's really interesting because it's it's beyond just the fact that they are large animals who eat a lot of stuff it's also the fact their feeding behavior 
also influences the environment in such an, a big way. I think that's quite that's quite cool. It's quite similar to elephants in that respect. Yeah. It's not elephants just that they're the munching loads of stuff. It's that they, when they're munching it, they're also knocking it down and ripping it all apart. It's really interesting. <laughs> I really like that. It's making elephants quite sa- sound quite savage there. <laughs> oh, I love my elephants. Um, <laughs> well, another kind of way, obviously, that whales influence the environment is also its prey, um, which I think is also really interesting because despite their size, obviously, we think of whales as really big animals. They are also... The prey for some other species. So in the past, in the kind of paleo environment, Woo. megalodon, um, Autodus megalodon, as I'm sure we've all heard of, the really, really big shark that used to live in the oceans, that would frequently re- predate on whales. It was definitely big enough. In the kind of modern day um, environment, orcas are also known to attack whales, um, especially juveniles. So orcas, killer whales, actually a dolphin, uh, a cetacean species, and 10% of orcas actually feed exclusively on marine mammals, which includes whales, also includes seals, but you've seen this again, it's often on Blue Planet and stuff, orcas are incredibly intelligent, they have this sort of almost pack mentality in the way that they hunt, and they often will target uh, juvenile whales on migrations, um, including that really, really big species like humpbacks. And this predation by orcas is also hypothesised to have led to the evolution of migratory patterns of the great whales to lessen attack. So that kind of shows the extent to which it could be happening if it's actually led to an evolutionary change, that the great whales have changed their migratory patterns to try and avoid the orcas or make it harder for the orcas to attack them. So that's that's also really interesting. So as much as they are a predator in the environment, they're also a prey species. And both predators and prey play such a key role in the classic food chain that you learn about in primary school <laughs> and yeah and if you think of you know if whales are altering their migration patterns to, to patterns to avoid orcas that means abundances of other things that they feed on like krill are going to change plankton's going to change it's all interconnected the ocean is all interconnected <laughs> um yeah exactly but it's also important that whales die in context it's important that they die in the ocean and sink to the floor that's really important yeah that's the important bit there so it is important that they die and float because i'm sure we've all seen the videos of sharks around the carcasses it's a really important source of nutrients big sharks need big blubber to eat because of the energy they can get from that fat Um, exactly and it's an easy way for those for sharks to get those calories without losing the calories Um, yeah exactly shark for a great white, for example, to kind of hunt a seal, that's a really, really intensive, you know, workout, essentially. And so if they fail hunting sort of twice, they're at a really high risk of starving because they've used up all their energy without having that reward. So then being able to have a carcass just float past you is really, really valuable to them. And then the other important thing is when they sink, because all everything that goes up must come down. Um, and so when the gas has exploded out of the whale, it's the carcass sinks down. Uh, and obviously the ocean is very, very deep and they sink down all the way to the bottom. And again, these are some of the most incredible sequences on Blue Planet. It's the whale carcass on the floor and you see all these weird deep sea things. It was things like little worms, sh- wasn't it? Yeah. Like it was all these white worms in, in the deep sea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was and all, bizarre. <laughs> all the big, the, <laughs> there's some really big sharks down there, which we never see. Big sharks like Greenland sharks, six gill sharks. I love the Greenland really, sharks. The really deep sleeper sharks, which They're just so look weird. They're so odd looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But whale... So it's, just, it's the circle what? of life, isn't it? It's yeah. It's that whole, Mufasa's whole thing of, you know, their body becomes the grass. Their body becomes the <laughs> Life lessons from the Lion King. We love yeah, it. exactly. 
What about that dark place on the horizon? You must never go there, Silver. Um, and so when carcasses of whales fall to the bottom, it's called, it's actually got a name. It's called, imaginatively, Whale Fall, which is kind of wow. a, quite a cool name, I think. Um, and they're the largest form of nutrients to fall to the bottom because obviously most ecosystems depend on light as the base, but there's no light down in the deep so when the whale carcasses fall they bring all this nutrients down it's the cycle of nutrients and next to thermovolcanic thermovolcanic what am i think what's the word i'm thinking of um geothermal that's it geothermal (laughs) thermovolcanic geothermal vents whale fall is actually the single largest production of nutrients that goes down to the bottom and so it's really good to enrich the deep benthic environment and this kind of leads quite nicely to kind of these ideas of nutrient and mineral flux. So as as you as you guys have said, through their swimming and their feeding, they contribute to primary production uh, through the kind of the vertical mixing, horizontal transfer and the recycling of carbon and other n- nutrients in the ocean. Um, but the one I really like is they also contribute mechanical energy to the ocean. So if you've got a hundred ton whale diving all the way down and it's you know doing this as it goes down it actually creates a mixing effect and so this breaks up the stratification of the oceanic water levels and so so cool isn't that amazing isn't that (laughs) the most amazing thing you've ever heard and it literally pushes nutrients and the really important one is, is is nitrogen it pushes nutrients and it essentially mixes up the ocean so whales are the you know the spoon mixing the ocean pot which i think is is fantastic Oh, I love thinking of whales like that. There's so much that they do for the oceans. It's fantastic. Whales are spoons. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think actually they're big spoons. When... Yeah, um, big um, And you can measure this. There are quite a few studies which measure the amount of nitrogen that whales mix. Um, and so you can actually figure out that they do deliver large amounts of nitrogen locked in the deep and they bring it up to the photic zone, which is what we call the light zone. Um, and because they feed below the thermocline, they then excrete, they poo and they pee, and that leaves a load of nutrients near the surface, bubbling upwards. And as you said, seabirds love the, love all that stuff. Fecal plumes is what they're called, and I think uh, I've <laughs> had one or two of them myself in my time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great word, isn't it? It's a fantastic plume. word. I love how with all other animals, a fecal plume would sound disgusting, but in whales, I'm like, yes, you're adding nutrients <laughs> to the ocean. Yeah. Go fecal plumes. And carbon is the other really, really important role uh, that whales play. And this is, it contributes to the whole ocean ecosystem. Um, so as they bring all these nutrients up to the surface, iron and nitrogen, all of these things are food for phytoplankton, the tiny little bitty plant things that seep at the surface. They generate energy through photosynthesis. And as we know from A-level biology, photosynthesis removes carbon from the atmosphere. So whales increase the phytoplankton, which increases the carbon capture. So more whales equals more carbon capture. And that's just the baseline. Phytoplankton itself is a massive, massive part of the marine ecosystem. They generate, it's estimated, they generate up to 50% of all the oxygen in the atmosphere while at the same time capturing 37 billion metric tonnes of CO2. That's 40% of all CO2 produced. That's a lot. And whales are the linchpin in this. We need whales because they are just keeping the carbon system going. Um, Yeah, phytoplankton do not get the credit that they deserve. (laughs) Absolutely not. They got the phytoplankton. 
They're absolutely incredible and they are the kind of work of phytoplankton is why it's so important to have healthy marine ecosystems because they're absorbing our carbon and creating our oxygen. So kind of the two key processes that we really need at this point. <laughs> and as you say, it's not just conserve phytoplankton, it's conserve the ecosystems which allow phytoplankton to do their job. Um, yeah, really incredible stuff. And we know in the oceans, there is quite literally always a bigger fish. The vast majority of animals in the ocean are in some way carnivorous or piscivorous. So you don't have a plant-based food chain. You don't have, you know, grass, grazers, lions. You've got phytoplankton, macroplankton, little fish, little bit bigger fish, little bit bigger fish, medium fish, bigger medium fish, and then the big fish, and then the whales on top. And it's that top-down control you really, really need. So whales are not only good for us, for the oxygen and carbon, they're also really, really good for the oceans. Yeah, definitely. And to kind of put a bit of perspective on the role of phytoplankton is that they are capturing approximately four times what the Amazon is capturing of CO2 every year. So as much as Ooh. also big up the Amazon, incredibly important lungs of the planet, phytoplankton also, you know, <laughs> that's four times what the Amazon rainforest is capturing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, there was a really nice quote by my favourite marine biologist, Asha DeVos, who works on blue whales and sperm whales off Sri Lanka. Incredible lady, you should absolutely check her out. Um, and she kind of said, Phytoplank phytoplankton is the invisible rainforest. We don't see yeah, it, we don't yeah. know it's there, but it's doing that job. Anyway, I've got a massive phytoplankton tangent now. <laughs> I think we Whales need to really raise important. awareness about phytoplankton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely, definitely. Um, but kind of sticking on the carbon trend, but moving slightly away from phytoplankton, as well as allowing phytoplankton to persist, whales actually are living carbon stores themselves. And this, they are often, this kind of carbon that is stored within marine wildlife is called blue carbon. So whales are an important regulator of carbon levels in our atmosphere and they are these living examples of the effectiveness of nature-based solutions to climate change, which we're all about here on this podcast. <laughs> um, and this can obviously ensure both human well-being and environmental benefits. So due to their both size and swimming patterns, whales both increase the, the ocean's ability to absorb CO2, as Roby just explained, but they also act as a kind of living carbon sink and they store CO2 in their body. So this is what blue carbon is. It's the carbon that is stored within the, the body of marine and coastal organisms. And they do this both during their lifetime and when they die. So when their bodies sink to the bottom again, as Roby explained, they trap carbon down there. And this is unlike this is carbon that's unlikely to reemerge for millennia. So it's similar to the tundra in my head. That's kind of mm. how I think of it. It's all frozen in the tundra. It's sort of stuck there. And it's going to stay there for up you know thousands of years and so that's that's great because that keeps it out of our atmosphere <laughs> that's where we want our carbon <laughs> exactly we want it stuck somewhere else um, yeah. a study in 2010 suggests that there are kind of eight types of baleen whales including the blue whales humpback whales minke whales and they carry about 30,000 tons of carbon to the bottom of the sea each year uh, which yeah. is a lot and they argue, the authors of this study, that if whale populations return to their former size, this carbon sink would increase to 160,000 tonnes each year. So that's a massive increase on the 30,000 that we currently have. And that's if whales kind of go back up, their stocks go back up to what they were kind of pre-decline, pre-whaling. Well, that's convinced me. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't need convincing, but if I did, that has convinced me. <laughs> exactly. You kind of think of the these you know nature-based solutions to climate change, and if you allowed whale populations to recover, you'd be increasing their ability to store carbon from 30,000 tons to 160,000 tons. Like, that is just insane. That is so, so, is so incredible. So whales, whales have not only won the First World War, they yeah. would also change the weather. That's crazy. Yeah. Whales change weather. <laughs> yeah, they have a massive influence on the climate. And the last study I want to mention in relation to this kind of blue carbon um, climate change stuff is actually a study we've mentioned in a previous podcast. Um, I can't remember which podcast this came up in. I think it was trophy hunting, but I, I think don't it know might have why... Been. It, I feel like we men- we've mentioned this a couple of times. This yeah, <laughs> we were talking about it about monetary value of animals. I think. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking it was trophy hunting, but I don't remember talking about the trophy hunting yeah. of whales. But um, <laughs> imagine sticking a whale head on your wall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this is one of I think all of our favourite studies relating to kind of climate science, and it was actually by an economist, um, which shows the importance of interdisciplinary work uh, in the field of conservation. But anyway, side note. <laughs> this economist looked into how much whales are worth, their monetary value, based on carbon sequestration. And this is a quote from their publication. Our conservative estimates put the value of the average great whale, based on its various activities, at more than $2 million, and easily over $1 trillion for the current stock of great whales. That's a conservative... Wow. That's end quote. That's their conservative estimate, that each whale... The average great whale, $2 million, and the entire stock of great whales, over a trillion dollars, wow. US dollars, Wow! just for their carbon sequestration. And when not you think even for that, the nitrogen, you know. Yeah, not even for all the other stuff we mentioned, just the fact that they are living stores of carbon and that they trap carbon at the bottom of the ocean. And when you think that, you know, climate change is something that is just such a hot topic at the moment and we're constantly trying to figure out ways to sequester carbon whales are just doing it (laughs) so one of the key things and this is when it becomes it's not just about climate and renewable energy it's also about conservation of biodiversity is so so important if we have a hope of tackling the climate crisis and this is just a prime example of why so i think that's really really cool i think these nature-based solutions we need to be looking to these more because nature has come up with the answers to all the big problems on our planet millions of years ago um but we're kind of just ignoring that but i mean that's phenomenal those statistics of two million per whale is is incredible so those are kind of big reasons why whales are so important that it's important to have them alive in our ocean so i guess yeah kind of the against whaling arguments there are also you know several problems with whalings beyond just the kind of ecology side um So Emma, do you want to maybe start with some of those? Yeah, so I think I guess a big one that the probably general public associate with whaling is kind of the animal rights ethical issue that you have, especially with these large, very intelligent, emotionally perceptive cetaceans. I think there is an ethical consideration to to be, I mean, addressed here, I think. So I think when many people think of whaling, they immediately think of what's called the grind. So that is a practice. Can I jump in? Yeah. It's actually called the Grinder Drap. And you know the people who made Seaspiracy? Yeah. They shortened it to the grind for dramatic effect. And a load of people were like, actually, Faroe Island people don't shorten it. They just call it Grinder Drap. And there was a whole thing about how it came in because it's actually dramatising. So I think maybe we call it the Grinder Drap. 
Okay, I'm happy to do that. There was um, it was Stacey Dooley's documentary recently. It was the Faroese people calling it the Grind. Hmm. But for I will call it the Grinder Trap just so that we're not using a, a term that isn't correct. Um. So yeah, that Grinder Trap is a practice that is carried out in the Faroe Islands, and it's where pilot whales are herded into a bay. Um. So interesting point to make is they're not actively kind of going out and hunting the pilot whales it'll be when someone spots a pod um off the faroe islands then all the local fishermen and all the people will boat with boats will round them up um drive them into a bay and they'll be killed by hand using this special tool that basically goes down at the back of the neck and it severs the spinal cord so the idea is they die quickly that's the point of it and the important to note with the with the pilot whales is that it's a local tradition and it's a way for the Faroese people to eat meat. We'll talk a bit more about the Faroe Islands. Um, and I think if people see this practice for the first time, they'll be quite shocked and consider this a huge ethical um, problem because there's lots of blo- blood in the water. Um, kind of the entire pod is killed in one go. Um but the local people do try to make this practice as quick as possible. But there is still a lot of stress, I would say, to herd all of these pilot whales into a bay and then witness other members of their pod being killed around them because they're not all going to be killed at the same time. So with so that would fall under the category of kind of subsistence Aboriginal whaling because they're just using the, the pilot whales for meat. Um, whereas commercial whaling... The way that they do that is they shoot the whale from a boat with what's called a harpoon cannon. So this is basically a, a gun that fires um, a harpoon rig- rigged with explosives into a whale and then it explodes inside the whale and the whale should die immediately. But there have been cases where it takes several minutes to die and according to a Norwegian report, 82% of whales are killed instantly but for a fifth it takes an average of six minutes to die. So I think a point to make is that people carrying out, whether it's subsistence or commercial whaling, want the whales to die as quickly as possible and for it to be as painless as possible. But for me personally, I have as much of an ethical issue with the meat and dairy industry as I do whaling. Um, And like we've kind of talked about with their ecology and just about in other podcasts about cetaceans, they're so highly intelligent and emotionally perceptive so I think there is an ethical concern there. It needs to be that the whales die as quickly as possible. And there's huge opposition to this. So we've talked about Sea Shepherd before. They are the largest, one of the largest marine conservation groups in the world. And they're really, really strongly opposed to whaling, particularly in the Faroe Islands. And they've been coming there since the 1980s to kind of protest against the Grinder Trap practice. And so originally their their approach was to block and disrupt the hunt. So they actually came in with boats to try and intercept um, the local Faroese people from bringing the pilot whales ashore. But now there's a legal ban that's stopping them doing that. And the way that they try and raise awareness is they just film. They film as soon as a grinder trap is happening and they'll put it all over social media so that people can see what's going on. So they've said they, they don't want people to, to hate the Faroese Islands or hate the Faroe, Faroese people, but it's just about raising awareness. So I think, yeah, people will have different opinions about that and what's the right way to go about addressing these big ethical 
ethical concerns. Yeah, I definitely um, kind of I agree with you in the sort of the ethical side with the whales versus the kind of um, meat and dairy industries that it's quite hard to oppose one and not the other. I think they're very similar. They're both raise ethical concerns and the kind of intelligence and social relationships between whales, I think is um, a really important point that we, we can't ignore. Um, I remember the, the Blackfish documentary, which obviously was talking about SeaWorld, which is not what we're talking about in this episode, but they mentioned about the kind of taking of the young away from the families and the fact they could hear the noise and when they dropped the nets and let the other whales go they didn't leave and there's these relationships that whales have with each other that's highly highly social orcas are actually have a whole part of their brain dedicated to social relationships that we don't even have so they can feel emotions that we can't feel and they feel emotions stronger than we do so we can't actually even understand what they go through when they witness members of their pods die or be taken away and so it it's it's almost worse in some ways than the meat and dairy industry in that sense um however obviously subsistence you know you also empathize a lot with the people it's tradition it's food for them it's 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 really complicated to have a kind of stronger stance it's quite different to the commercial meat and dairy industry i guess it would be more similar to compare it to subsistence commercial no subsistence meat and dairy but i'm not sure if it even is comparable to that very complicated stuff. I think the ethical side is when when my brain really goes like, Poof, mm. I don't really know what yeah. to think. I find the science side a bit easier to understand. Um, one of the other kind of big problems with whaling is the impacts on marine productivity. So obviously, as we've said, that whales are so important in the marine environment and they have this strong influence and they promote productivity. And what that means for people... Um, so a study in the Caribbean showed that the presence of whales improve fishery yields. So the loss or steep declines of whales due to whaling could lessen these yields. And many people are reliant on fish as their primary food source and livelihood. And so whaling could have really high economic impacts for these people um, and for, you know, other people who eat fish um, who aren't necessarily reliant on their primary source. But a lot of people around the world eat fish. And so it could have a big economic impact on us. It's also this loss of um, food source for other species. Obviously, as we mentioned, they are considered a prey, they're detritus, um, but some uh, benthic uh, fauna have been thought to gone extinct during whaling times Hmm. um, due to the lack of whale fall. So some Hmm. of these creatures, these weird and wonderful creatures that live on the deep ocean floor um, are thought to have been completely lost because they were so reliant on whale fall as their primary source of food. Um, And so that has a really big impact potentially on the whole ecosystem. Huh, I didn't know that. That's a weird thing to think about, that an animal which would never see a living whale probably would not even know what one was, wouldn't recognise it if it if it swam by, would, you know, go extinct when, they, when they, you know, they, their numbers were decreased. It's, it's all yeah. those connections we, mm. we always don't think about. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting way to put it. The other issue with whaling is that whales can be really toxic and again this is our fault um whales are long-lived predators essentially at the top of the food chain um and because they occupy these very high trophic levels we've talked about this so many times bioaccumulation of toxins mm-hmm. concentrations of biomolecules accumulate in their bodies because you know if they're eating a million krill over there over a week each of those krill has a tiny little biomolecule in it then they have a million of those 
Methyl mercury is the one that really springs to mind. Again, it's a kind of anthropogenic cause that it's in the oceans. It runs off when we dump all ash sewage and our treatment into the oceans. And it is really harmful to humans. Methyl mercury can kill you. And high levels of methyl mercury accumulate in these great whales. Great whales actually not so much, but predatory species like the longfin pilot whales that they eat in the Faroe Islands have really, really high levels of dangerous mercury. And they can cause illnesses such as cancers. Um, you can also get blood poisoning from them. Because I've seen that in orcas as well. We talked about that recently yeah. with orcas. With um, That was with PCBs. And again, that's a result of the technology, waste, industry, human, human caused. Yeah, exactly. And in the, the, the highest levels of methyl mercury found in whales, dan highest dangerous levels to consumption are in the Caribbean, Faroe Islands and Japan. Hmm. Uh, the highest ah, itself is St. St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which is in the Caribbean. Um, so regardless of the economic and cultural benefits that they might bring, there is a danger to eating whales. Um, they're also in a way, because they're not farmed, you can't regulate what they're, what they're fed. So yeah. you don't get a mercury buildup in cows because you can farm and regulate the feed that they eat. You can't do that. These are wild animals. You don't know what they're eating. Um, and so there are very high levels of these toxins. Well, they've even found that some tuna has dangerously high levels of mercury. Mm. And tuna are sort of a step Below down the whales, yeah. on the food chain. And they found this with, with dolphins in you know cultures that eat dolphins that the, the high levels were actually because the dolphin were eating the tuna. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's the tuna that's the dangerous bit and then the dolphins eat that and it just gets worse. But um, yeah, if you think that even below them on the food chain, we spoke about this during the sustainable seafood, the kind of eating lower down the food chain might be a good answer in terms of sustainability, but also health. Yeah. Another kind of argument which is used in favour of 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 whaling in in a more commercial form, especially as it's continuing today, is essentially scientific whaling or whaling for research. Um, and this is called lethal sampling because if you're whaling, you're going to kill it and you dissect it and you see, okay, what's it been eating? How old is it? What's its health like? You can look at the ovaries and see has it ever been pregnant to get an idea of demography. But the general consensus is there's little to no value to lethal sampling. Not only do you decrease the potential future sample size, uh, you also decrease, if it's a female, the potential for reproduction of, of future samples. And there's actually very little. Uh, some, people, some people say there is a little bit, but most, most scientists, I think, at the moment recognise that there's actually nothing that you can't learn from a living, living whale that you could learn from a dead whale. You can even tell if whales have been pregnant or not. You just need a blood sample and maybe it's a little harder to get, but I would imagine it's cheaper going up alongside a whale on a speedboat, sticking a stick in its back, getting a blood sample than it is to actually have a whaling boat which comes out, shoots the whale with an exploding harpoon, drags it and then slicing it open on deck. There is very little value to lethal sampling. I also think often, you know, you hear so much about um, beaching incidents, especially mass yeah. beaching, yeah. where whales ro rock up on the beach and obviously you can't predict that and you don't know where it's going to be or how often it's going to happen but you know annually there must be figures or i don't know them now but how many whales wash up on a beach annually globally surely that's enough to get what we would need if that's there's definitely anything that more we... than commercial catches total yeah, yeah so we could surely just sample those and i understand that they might not be in your country or in a convenient place located to your lab but I'm sure we could have some sort of access to that information. And so any information you did want to get, you could just get from natural deaths. Or, I mean, a lot of beaching events are arguably not natural, but 
not additional deaths anyway. Yeah. And it's important to remember that whales beaching, whales have always beached. Even with no mm. humans around, beaching is a natural behaviour. Obviously, something's gone wrong for the whale, they're stressed, yada, yada, yada. But whales do beach naturally, and it's not always a human cause. So if you're worried if you're worried that you're going to get skewed data, you're only going to get whales which are ill because of humans, that's not actually true. Healthy whales do just take a wrong turn and, oh, on a beach. Um, so there is a big sample size there. Yeah, and also, like, again, with the orcas that we talked about before, that was recently, it was an entangled orca in kind of fishing gear, Hmm. and they were able to then do a dissection on that whale, which had already died, figure out the ovaries were non-functional, they were able to analyse PCB levels in the blubber. There's so much data that you can get from, I think, without the need to commercially hunt whales, I think. Hmm. So I think one problem um, when it comes to whale harvesting is that, we were kind of looking, well, I say we, kind of the, the scientific community <laughs> who was involved in kind of whale demographics was kind of looking at these population demographic graphs maybe a bit wrong. Because so with fishing, we talked about this in the fishing episode, um, one way to control fish stocks and numbers is through fixed quota harvesting. So that's when a quota is set so that individuals can be harvested only up to a certain number of individuals each year so that too many aren't taken. And so in kind of population ecology and and economics, this is kind of called the maximum sustainable yield. So it's the largest catch, theoretically, that can be taken from a species stock over an indefinite period. And a key point here is that the maximum sustainable yield is assumed to be half the carrying capacity. So the carrying capacity is this maximum population size of a biological species that can be sustained given the resources. So a point to make with whales is that it was assumed that this maximum maximum sustainable yield was half the carrying capacity, but it wasn't. And this is what caused a huge overharvesting of whales. So big whales, particularly those that kind of grow, reproduce, develop quite slowly, they have what's called a right-skewed recruitment curve. And this is something that Roby and I were learning about at uni. And it kind of means that the population size won't recover quickly enough if you just kind of assume you have this half the carrying capacity of a maximum sustainable yield. So a population size half the carrying capacity, um, they were just over-harvesting these whales massively because they had this right skewed recruitment curve so this is kind of what led to the unsustainable whale harvest so that's when i think it's so important to understand these demographics and how they work and treat it on a species specific basis because you can't assume that all species maximum sustainable yields will be the same especially in the ocean because you talk about maximum sustainable yield in kind of marine and fishery science a lot and I think that originally was designed around fish and fish are incredibly fecund. They lay a lot of eggs. Um, And so it's quite hard for fish to go extinct actually because they lay so many eggs and they're so fecund. But a whale is a slow, long living organism that doesn't reproduce a hundred or so eggs every so often. It's sort of one at a time. And then they have their calves for a while. And so it's it's much... (laughs) it's much harder for them to recover their populations if they're being fished at a certain level. So it's it's difficult. It's You can't assume that one size fits all with maximum sustainable yield. And an interesting example of this, I think, again, this uh, was this Asher DeVos? I don't know. So I'm not sure who this is, but someone definitely said it and I heard it. Um, 
they said, uh, you know, with fish, the amount of mothers you have is not actually going to tell you the amount of babies you will have because each mother will have thousands and thousands of eggs. And actually what determines the amount of babies that will grow to maturity is the levels of predation. Whereas with whales, you will never have more babies than you will have fertile mothers at any one time. Mm. They don't have twins. Mm. That's another thing. So, the, you know, the health of the the health of whales really depends on these fertile mothers. And you said something really nice about sustainability, Emma, and how it's, you know, based on different models. Sustainability also, we have to take that into account when we talk about subsistence whaling as well, because it does vary according to locality and type of hunt. So the Faroe Islands hunt, this uh, Grindergrap hunt, uh, kills around 800 long-filled pilot whales if they're successful every year. And some years they, some years they don't. Um, but cultural and economic arguments aside, there is no way that removing 800 long-filled pilot whales from a population every year is in any way going to be sustainable. Because these large animals, pilot whales are a bit like, they fall under the same category as the other great whales. They only have, ever have one calf at a time. They have a long weaning period any population will not be able to replenish that so regardless of the you know the intent in which it's being done and the tradition there and the intent behind it regardless of the um that whether it's humane or not whether they kill them in a purely population sustainability lens it's not sustainable and it never will be because it's too many animals and the trouble is because it's the entire pod getting but getting killed at the same time you lose the information that is passed down by generation to generation the older animals which will teach the younger ones so not only is it not sustainable from a demographic point of view it's actually not sustainable from a whale culture point of view because we know that whales and dolphins have culture so you're you're depressing that as it were but you have to contrast this because, as you say, it varies from location to location. So the two communities in Indonesia which whale are Lamalera and Lamakera, and they're actually on two different islands. They usually catch fewer than 20 whales a year. Some years they catch about one or two, and they only take sperm whales. And the average, I think, is five per year. So okay. these two communities take, in total, between them, five sperm whales per year. They go out on traditional wooden boats with wooden weapons, um, a harvesting company lent them a uh, professional whaling boat and they sent it back because they caught te- te- like 15 sperm whales. And they said, there's no way we can do all this. We can't, we can't use 15 sperm whales. It's ridiculous. So that on balance, if on a population and demographic point of view, is sustainable. Because the sperm whale population in the Pacific can sustain losing 15 whales a year. St. Vincent on the Grenadines also takes take, falls into this bracket. They take around four humpbacks per year using traditional methods. And again, the Caribbean humpback population can sustain that loss. However, the Alaskan Eskimo Whaling Commission, which oversees a lot of Inuit whaling in Alaska, takes around 50 bowhead whales from a population in the Arctic of around 10,500 each year. And again, because we know that these bowheads, and bowheads are really, really bad when it comes to breeding they have one calf and it's probably about 10 year intervals so it's actually feared that that's not sustainable even though it's a really low number it's only 50 so we do need to look at each practice individually depending on location and species and the individual species demography is really important to take into account here no definitely and i think that's a really good point you made about the the pilot whales if you're losing the entire pod that's very different to just taking four humpbacks, for example, because that won't be the entire group. I think there's also an interesting point with kind of 
ownership and national sovereignty, kind of linking back to the IWC um, thing that we were talking about before. So South Korea um, had a representative of the um, IWC that once said, this is not a forum for moral debate. This is a forum for legal debate. So as a responsible member of the commission, we do not accept um, any such categorical absolute um, proposition that Wales should not be killed or caught. Um, so It seems like to the, each side of this debate is having a different conversation. Yeah. Almost. Very much so. Um, and the final kind of point that I've come up with since researching this podcast is that, and Japan used this argument quite a lot, they want to harvest whales in order to protect fish stocks. So they want to control whale numbers in order to alleviate pressure on fish stocks. The only reason you would ever have this argument in the first place is if fish stocks were in decline. And fish stocks are in decline, but it's not because the whales are eating them, it's because we're over-harvesting them. The only solution to increasing fish stocks is decreasing human harvesting, not by controlling the whales. And I have to admit, this argument holds no water and is completely flawed yeah no um, i don't I'm see that say it. <laughs> it's it's scientifically inaccurate as well because mm. as i mentioned before whales actually improve productivity in the ocean and allow fish stocks to exactly, be, exactly. have higher yields and so that's you know it's like saying i don't want beavers in the uk because they're gonna eat too many fish oh don't get me started on that one you know i will go there you know i will go there it's not quite as bad as that but it's it's sort of in that realm of just we're just gonna say something and hope it sticks and which makes absolutely no sense (laughs) but beyond the kind of those will have problems with whaling of different types of whaling and stuff like that but there's kind of a sort of this isn't really a con of whaling, it's just a sort of problem that we have to mention when discussing whaling, is that there are big kind of data constraints and issues with studying whales, just nothing to do with whaling, but also with studying whaling. So ocean scientists have been quite slow to accept the view that whaling has a profound negative impact on marine environments. Um, So a study by Roman et al. in 2014 explained that the reason there's been this sort of slow acceptance is primarily because of three interrelated reasons. So the first one is that after World War II, whale populations were so depleted and in such a steep decline that there was such little opportunity to study the oceans with a natural stock of predators. So any studies happening after the two world wars were studying a depleted system, not a healthy system. So we didn't have that baseline comparison of what it was supposed to look like. The second um, reason is there are logical and operational challenges in studying large mobile animals at sea. Um, And manipulative (laughs) experiments are all but impossible. And also counting them at sea. Like, you can't just see them. Yeah. They're under the water. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, you've got to have, you know, systematic sampling techniques, but, you know they are big and they are moving and the ocean is bigger. And so it's not the same as studying wildlife in a national park that's confined. Um, So there's that. And then the third reason is that there has been a prevailing focus of ocean science on bottom-up controls, um, such as resource limitations and kind of physical factors, such as temperature. So there's sort of been this focus on that rather than on, I guess top-down controls or on whales or whaling or specific species at all 
So Roman et al argue that the ecological role of whales has been undervalued because scientists have underestimated the degree to which the depletion of whales caused by the worldwide commercial harvest has altered the marine environments. And I just think it's an interesting point to make because we haven't got reliable data or it's harder to get, we have got, sorry, we have got reliable data, but it's hard to get this kind of data and we don't really know what we're comparing it to because by the time sort of modern science took over and we started doing these studies, we didn't know what it looked like before whaling was going on. Um, so I think that's a really important point that there's a sort of data issue and it's quite complicated. It's not as simple as we need this many whales back or we lost this many. It's it's a little bit difficult and there's a, there's a big difference talking about the oceans to talking about marine environments when it comes to data collection. Mm. And I think also like we mentioned with the um, like really deep sea kind of carcasses and stuff that sink down which is having a huge impact on those species how are you supposed to monitor that if you don't like know where the whale is if you don't know where it's sunk like there's the whole aspect of monitoring it dead and alive i think which is just incredibly challenging and modern technology has played such a vital role in that um being able to get down deep and see these things and film them yeah is really yeah. recent um because of technology and so we again we're working with this new data without a baseline yeah i really like what you just said there about the kind of data deficiency because i think it brings up another problem is that it's such a complicated issue because there's so many different threads all coming in and we don't fully understand all of them that yet. And we don't understand fully the impacts of whaling. And we don't understand fully how many whales there were before. And we can only guess. And a really kind of nice case study to kind of talk about how complex this is, is Japan. Um, and on our notes, because we have notes, otherwise we can't keep all this information in our head. The, the subtitle is The Japanese Whaling Conundrum. <laughs> so let's talk yeah. about the Japanese whaling conundrum. Um, because it is a real conundrum, isn't it? Yeah, this, I think this is such an interesting case study. Um, the Japanese relationship with whaling, I just think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so Japan was a member of the IWC and they opted to leave in December 2018 um, with the decision coming into effect at the end of June 2019. And Japanese officials said that eating whaling, eating whales is part of their cultures. Um, and so that was a big reason why they wanted to leave the IWC because of this ban on commercial whaling. Many conservationists were deeply concerned that Japan's withdrawal from the IWC would have really dramatic consequences for the species protected under the w IWC, such as minke whales. And this made international news. Like this was a really big story at the time. I that Japan yeah. was leaving the IWC and what did this all mean? So we're gonna break it down for you as best we can. So obviously, as we've <laughs> mentioned, under IWC regulation, commercial whaling is banned, but whaling for scientific purposes is allowed. And as we sort of said, that's obviously a bit of a contentious issue in itself. But scientific whalers say that they need to kill whales to determine age, reproduction status, um, diet, effects on environmental changes. And this is information that they claim is needed for the future management of whale stocks. Um, and they say that non-lethal methods such as biopsies are inefficient and impractical. Whether you agree or disagree on that, that's their position. Therefore... Even during a time where Japan was a member of the IWC and thus had to abide by the moratorium that was agreed by all the members of the IWC, Japan actually continued to hunt whales in various parts of the world and they claimed all of these expeditions were for scientific purposes, which is allowed. So in the decade before their departure from the IWC, Japan was catching between 200 and 1,200 whales every year. 
for science. Hmm. That, that's a lot that's... of a lot of samples. I've seen quite a lot mm. of claims online, and I don't know how accurate that, that these are, because I don't mm. know if anyone does. Um, that this scientific whaling is a front for commercial food production whaling in yes. this instance, and a lot of people feel quite firmly about this, and I haven't read enough about it to know. But bear that in your mind when when mm. you're listening to this. It's possible that actually some of this wasn't scientific whaling, or maybe that was just the label they stuck on it. And I think, you know, what probably was happening is they were doing a bit of science mm. and then they were like, oh, we don't want to throw this whale away. Let's yeah. Yeah. use it. Yeah. Um, and or, so... or the other way around. They were like, oh, we need to continue commercial whaling. Let's do a bit of science mm. and then we can commercially work. Yes, either or. <laughs> but it does mean that the, I, the decision in 2019 for the IWC, for Japan to leave the IWC does not mean that Japan's suddenly going to start whaling again. They've been whaling this whole time. And what's even more interesting and what I think makes this whole case study really just like gritty is that... (laughs) A bit like haggis. (laughs) When, yeah, when you actually look at how Japan's, at Japan's decision to leave the IWC, it can actually be seen as beneficial to whales. So Japan announced that they were going to cease whaling in the Southern Ocean and the North Pacific once they left the IWC. So they were only going to concentrate their efforts in Japanese territorial waters. That's because there is a commercial ban on whaling by the IWC, and so they wouldn't be allowed to commercially whale outside of their territorial waters. But under the science you know, loophole that they were whaling before, they were whaling in loads of places around the world, including Antarctica, mm-hmm. and they were the only country whaling in Antarctica. So now Antarctica is whaling free. So Japan's decision to leave the IWC has created a sanctuary for whales in Antarctica. And Antarctica is a massively important area for so many species of whales. It's on a lot of migratory routes. It's one of the most incredible places to see whales in the world. I'm dying to go there one day. So this is actually really cool, I think, because it now kind of has created this whaling free space. And... I just think the whole kind of Japanese relationship with the IWC and the fact that it made big news and everyone thought it was really terrible, but when you looked into it, it could be a good thing. It just highlights how complicated this issue is Mm. um, and that the original headline obviously is not the whole story and it sounds like a really bad news, but it could actually be good news because firstly, it's not actually much, not much has changed. They're still whaling. They've been whaling this whole time. So it's not like whales have been slowly recovering whaling free and now they're going to get hit. No, like they're just going to, continue having what they have before but in a concentrated area so it might be bad for japan's territorial waters and their ecosystems there we'll have to see how that plays out but globally it actually could be a really good thing it's essentially created a massive no-take mpa for whales around antarctica and knowing what i know about antarctica and the antarctic ocean i would imagine it's definitely a more important habitat for whales than japanese territorial waters I think so. I think yeah. it's um, it's a side you never hear, though. When mm. all the media that came out as kind of Japan leaving the IWC was incredibly say, saying how damaging that would be for Wales. But I think this puts mm. a very interesting perspective. Hopefully it makes mm. people think a bit <laughs> about that decision. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely worth then reading the whole story and looking into the decision. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think maybe it's also good that we touch upon kind of what does it mean if you're outside the IWC? Because obviously we've just talked about Japan and what that means and kind of what does it mean now that they're not part of it? So there are international laws in place 
which kind of non-IWC members have to abide by. Kind of, it's not just a free-for-all, um, take everything you want f- from the ocean for, for non-members. But as we've seen time and time again, we've talked about this a lot on various different podcasts, that vague language in legislation makes it really difficult to understand kind of as a positive. So, for example, the UN Convention on the Law of Seabirds states that countries should cooperate on the conservation of whales. Um, And Mm. this is in quotes, through the appropriate international organisations for their conservation, management and study. So you might read that and think of the IWC as kind of the international organisation they're referring to. But they don't state which international organisation this actually is. So (laughs) it might not actually be the IWC, um, but it could actually extend to pro-whaling bodies like the North Atlantic Marine Mammal Commission. So that that very vague language means that people people just don't know. Um, So all this law means is that countries have to cooperate in conservation... But that could be through whaling regulations rather than a worldwide ban. Um, So that North Atlantic Marine Mammal Commission, NAMCO, which is a cool um, acronym, um, includes countries such as Iceland and Finland who continued continued whaling, sorry, and they actually created this um, organisation out of frustration with the IWC. So Japan mm. could join Namco, it could start its own whaling commission, and it could then encourage others to join. So I think just saying we all need to collaborate when it comes to whaling is a bit vague. <laughs> collaborate with who? <laughs> I think that's a bit vague. Um, yes. Mm. It comes back as well, there's always the, the, politi- the political angle as well. So I guess another important point to raise kind of like from a social aspect is Japan was introduced to large scale whaling by someone called General Douglas MacArthur after the US drove millions of people um, in Japan to the brink of starvation after World War Two. So basically whale meat was introduced to school meals and it became part of the diet and the culture because of basically the the starvation that was happening during world war ii um so japan is usually seen as a scapegoat for whaling worldwide and the worst offender and the first country a lot of people think of when they think of whaling um but the west doesn't have a clean record when it comes to whaling or the destruction (laughs) of marine ecosystems so i don't think we can just continue to blame particular countries like that example i think highlights that really well the fact that may- maybe whaling in mm. japan did originate as a result of kind of world war two world war two and the intervention with the us i think it's mm. a lot more complex than people think it is and we also need to look at our own discourse when we're talking about these issues and especially if we're standing against them i think um because there's a lot of kind of cultural aspects which are ignored so the kind of the big visible activist player opposing Japanese whaling is the organisation Sea Shepherd, um, who presumably have not heard about the new no-take MPA for whales in the Antarctic. And they're really (laughs) visible with their activism against Japanese whaling vessels. You know, they shadow them with megaphones on their speedboats looking at them. But we also have to ask, actually, is this working? And we've talked about this organisation on previous podcasts. I think the Vakita podcast. Yeah. Um, So taking a step back and looking at it holistically before Sea Shepherd became involved 
Um, and, you know, if anyone who's been to Japan, I haven't, but I know quite a few people who have, and I know quite a bit about it. Japanese culture is quite hierarchical and it's quite strongly honor based. There is no way the Japanese government will ever capitulate and cease whaling to because of Sea Shepherd. No way. Kaput. Ever. It will never happen. Um, and actually the aggressive actions of Western conservationists have actually hardened the stances of both the government and the people. And since the, I, the Japan left the IWC and the actions of uh, these Western conservation organisations, since they've increased, consumption of whale meat in Japan has also increased. And the size of the whale meat market in Japan has increased. There's actually quite a few, there was quite a few journalists uh, interviewed by the Garden, Guardian about it, who commented that on the ground in Japan, whale, whaling was close to disappearing as a viable industry before it became a neo-colonialist issue. So I think that's a really nice example of how this whaling issue is so complex. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it does feel like conservationists, governments and the public are actually taught having three different conversations about one thing. Um, that South Korean quote, they don't see it as a moral issue. They're just looking at it as a legal issue. But then most people are talking in a moral ground. And it kind of highlights, again, you can't base your own opinion on just a headline. There's a lot of nuance in these issues. And we actually have the obligation, I feel, to read about them and form our own opinions. Um, and the last thing I'll kind of say, which is, again, as I was, you know, researching this, it struck me as somewhat similar to trophy hunting. Is Is this issue in its current incarnation, something of a scapegoat for other marine conservation issues. So we've just talked about how actually Japan leaving the IWC and resuming commercial whaling has created a larger whale sanctuary. Um, And commercial whaling and subsistence whaling at the moment don't seem to me to be the biggest threats to whales. The WWF says that 90% of all northern right whales killed by human activities are from ship collision. So why aren't we talking about changing our shipping movements more? Noise pollution and bycatch kill many, many more whales each year than whaling does. But they're not as flashy. They're not the headline news. I think historically whaling was one of the biggest threats to whales. Um, Mm. I think there were times, and the reason whale stocks declined so heavily Mm. was because of whaling. Absolutely. But I agree that in today, I don't think it is. And I think it is similar to trophy hunting in the sense that it has a face and we can blame Mm. specific places, especially because in some parts of the world it's banned and some parts it's not. So it's easy to say it's their fault. But I don't think that's right at all. I don't think that's mm. the way we should be discussing these issues. And I, I I don't think it is as big of a threat, but it's it's easier to get angry about because it's also potentially easier to stop because we can just stand here and say, mm. well, we should just ban whaling, which is much easier than saying, let's tackle climate change. Let's restructure <laughs> the entire international fishing industry. It's much easier yeah. to say, we'll just ban whaling for everyone. Um, so I don't think we're directing our energy in the right place. I do think that this is a scapegoat for other issues, but... But it is an issue in itself and I think we have to learn from the past and think about what it did do and how it was so damaging to whale stocks and make sure mm. that we don't go back there. So it's definitely an issue we need to keep you know, looking at, but in conjunction with all the other problems facing the marine environment. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree. And I think now we, we have a better understanding now that we know, for example, that whales have a, a right skewed recruitment curve that will change the quotas because we now know that's inaccurate how we were harvesting them before 
but I do think it does make a flashy news headline and so people particularly say with the work of Sea Shepherd which in some countries I do think is hugely valuable but possibly not in in the case of whaling um the fact that it's just it's like you said Kate it's giving a face to people to feel angry about so say with all the Faroese people who are killing the, the pilot whales if they are filmed they're on camera um, no it, wonder they're angry. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if many of them have received kind of death threats or horrible emails as a result of of that. And it's kind of I think this is why we wanted to have this this balanced discussion of maybe it isn't all about whaling. Um, I mean, we've seen it's incredibly complex. It's happens in different ways in different parts around the world. And like you said, Roby, there are lots of other threats. Like sonar, to me, mm. is one of the biggest threats to Wales along with climate change and all the other things but I don't see the military in any hurry to kind of change their (laughs) sonar practices no I think yeah it's so complicated I think my kind of final thoughts are I am opposed to all killing of whales on on moral grounds I think there's any positive for it but at the same time I don't think I'm in any position to tell uh, aboriginal subsistence hunters that they can no longer subsist like, I'm, I don't think mm. anyone should be in any position to say that. So, you know, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, the Alaskan uh, Inuit, the Russia's Chutki Aboriginals, Indonesia's Lamera and Lamakera, I think they take few enough whales each year. And so I think that's, I don't want to say perfectly fine, but I think they're perfectly fine to continue um, without damaging whales overall. I think there should be some changes. So um in particular in alaska where some subsistence hunters do take bowhead whales i would like to see all bowheads off the list just because i don't think that demographic can sustain that but you know if they say okay why in order to change that we're gonna take a few more belugas i think that's probably probably you know a loss that can be borne by the population um i think the faroe islanders and the taiji bay dolphin drives i don't think they're entirely they can entirely count as aboriginal subsistence um i wouldn't you know but just because i don't think the entire economy is based on that their entire livelihoods are based on that um, i don't think the the taji bay we haven't really gone into yeah, detail on it but maybe that was yeah definitely not subsistence because yeah. they they take dolphins for amusement parks from that drive as well yeah and i think i think even the faroe islanders i think there is an i think there are, that is too many and i don't think that population can be born so i think that should be reduced especially when it's the whole pod yeah, yeah. But I actually do think that I don't think I want Japan, Iceland, Nor- uh, Norway and South Korea to stop commercially whaling. I think there's there might be a better alternative. If Japan if these countries want to continue commercially whaling, we know they have a vested interest in keeping healthy whale stocks. Otherwise, they're not going to have a job anymore. So I think for any for those four countries that want to continue commercially whaling, I think that the, there should be a stipulation that they also have to invest, okay, say twice the amount of money they invest in whaling, they also have to invest twice that amount of money back into stopping bycatch, stopping um, way, uh, shipping lanes going across whale migration routes, um, all these sorts of things, you know, developing uh, sonar that doesn't harm whales. I think actually those four, in, to my mind, the impact that they have is is, is, is enough that Okay, I I wouldn't cry if they continued, but I would want to see them do absolutely more to stop all the other really big things like bycatch and things. Um, I think, you know, whaling in these developed countries should be treated as the luxury that it is. They don't need it. It's a luxury. 
And if you're mm. going to have a luxury, you should be able to prepared to be pay more. And I think that means, okay, they've got to invest in halting all toxic and chemical runoff in the mercury, you know, that sort of thing. So that's those are kind of my final ideas on whaling, I think. Yeah, I really like that. I think I agree um, in that I don't necessarily, in my gut, I, I, if you, you know, put a gun to my head and said, are you opposed to whaling? I would say yes, because yeah, same. I don't like the idea of killing whales. Um, I don't like the idea of, you know, unnecessary killing of wild animals in general, but whales, I think a lot of people have such an affinity with because we know they're so intelligent and so social, a lot of them. Um, so I am opposed to it on a sort of moral, ethical ground, but I agree that I don't think all whaling should just, there should be this global ban. I think we need to be working with these countries and talking to them and understanding it better and understanding how much can be taken that doesn't have this terrible impact. And so I like the idea that you just said of having, okay, if it's not subsistence, if it's commercial whaling, you can do it with these quotas, but you need to invest money into their conservation. Because yeah, that's an excellent point that if they're commercial whaling, their whole business rests on- Being whales to whale. (laughs) Yeah, whales population persisting and being healthy and recovering well, um, which has all these other incredible benefits. So yeah, I think that's a really great way to to compromise, to say, okay, yeah, commercial whaling's fine, but we have to also prioritise the conservation of whales and the ecosystems that they live in. Yeah, no, I, I quite like that point. And I think we should just be whalers, scientists and everyone else in between should just be working to get whale stocks up to a point where the ecosystem is self-regulating and functioning again. Because like we were kind of talking about with with anglers and kind of hunters in the past, it's in their interest as well to have high whale numbers so that they can keep doing what they're doing in a, like air quotes here, sustainable way. Um, because... I think like you, you've said Roby and, and Kate as well like we, you have to consider this on a on a case-by-case basis and the different species because actually if you're taking very few whales this is very different to industrial fishing where you've got the huge nets and you're going to catch unintended things with whaling especially commercial whaling you've got a gun on a ship and it explodes inside the singular whale nothing else is dying other than that one whale and if you're using all of it arguably this was an argument made by the Faroese people was that they would then have to get meat from elsewhere so would it be better if they were then importing a load of beef from the Amazon rather than continuing to eat something like the pilot whale so I think that mm. there's a lot to consider there um, and which is why I don't think we can just say all oh, whaling is bad it must stop because like we've mm. seen with the Japan example maybe it has created a refuge in Antarctica and as always, with season two, I feel like <laughs> it's <laughs> a, a very, place to round up. very controversial and complex. <laughs> yeah. Mm, definitely. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, sorry if it's made your head hurt. It usually does with me, these big issues. Um, so we will see you next time. If you would like to see more of our podcasts and some of our films, uh, check out www.biome-project.co.uk. That's our website. We're also, all our podcasts and films are on YouTube. Um, and we're also on Spotify as a podcast as well. So if you want to also find more about us, uh, we've just been to the Isle of Mull filming incredible otters and seagulls and it was great anyway so if you'd like to find out more about us uh we are emma hodson at emma hodson wildlife on instagram 
at Roby Watkinson Wildlife on Instagram and at Conservation Kate on Instagram. And we post lots and lots of nice wildlife content. Uh, and you can see about our recent trip to Scotland where we were filming some incredible wildlife. So thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.